1982. Rebecca Williams, a 19-year-old mother of three, was raped and stabbed over 30 times in her Virginia apartment, but could only describe her attacker as an African-American man acting alone before she died. Now, almost a year later, Earl Washington was arrested in a neighboring county for an alleged burglary. After two days of nonstop questioning, the police claimed he had confessed to a total of five crimes, including the murder of Rebecca Williams. Now, regarding those confessions, the first four were dismissed out of hand because of inconsistencies in the testimony and a total inability for the victims to even identify Washington. In the fifth confession, Washington apparently confessed to raping and killing Rebecca Williams, but didn't know any of the details. So he didn't know whether she was black or white, didn't know how old she was, her height, her weight, her address. She knew none of the details. And he didn't know the nature or the extent of the crime committed. Specifically, he didn't know she had been raped or that she had been stabbed to death. In addition, it was only during the fourth attempt at a very rehearsed confession that the authorities were able to accept Washington's statement, have it recorded, and get his signature. Nonetheless, January 20th, 1984, Oral Washington was sentenced to death. And as a result, he sat on death row waiting execution for the next 17 years of his life. Can you even imagine what that must have been like for him? Isolated from other prisoners, excluded from education programs, restricted in terms of visitation and exercise, and spent as many as 23 hours a day alone in his cell. In his cell. And of course, the constant uncertainty of when am I going to die? How horrible that must have been. But do you know what happened to Earl Washington? One day, the guard came walking down the landing like he had done every single day for the past 17 years. But this day, he opened the door and he announced to Earl Washington, you're free. In fact, on that very day, he walked out of the prison as a free man because the DNA testing proved he was not guilty and the conviction was a total mistake. So Earl's sentence was removed and he was set free. No longer sentenced to death and no longer enslaved to prison. What must that have been like? One moment you're on death row and then the next you're free to do whatever you please. So you, so you walk out of the prison with the sun on your face and the wind blowing through your hair. No bars, no chains, no restrictions, no judgment over your head and no shackles around your feet. You're alive and you're free. Can you even imagine the joy? Now, our passage this morning in Exodus is going to give us a sense of those radically different emotions, because Israel at this point has been enslaved in Egypt for 430 years, so they've experienced the horror of being harassed and oppressed by wicked taskmasters. But this morning, they're going to experience the joy and the wonder of their salvation and its corresponding freedom. 
But all of that is only possible through the death of the Passover lamb who is slaughtered as a substitute in order to purchase their freedom. So our passage obviously points forward to the Lord Jesus, the one true spotless lamb of God who willingly died in our place so that we might be delivered from sin, death, and the devil. So salvation not only from judgment, but salvation from our enslavement to sin. But critical for us to understand this morning that this salvation is only possible through a substitute. So if you would go ahead and open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 11, verse 1. My outline is right there in your bulletin. Exodus 11 is on page 53. As always, let me just give you a quick review while you're turning to Exodus chapter 11. If you remember, chapter 1 starts with the nation of Israel enslaved to Egypt, oppressed and afflicted. They're beaten and they're overworked. And yet God promises are unstoppable, and the people multiply. Chapters 2 and 4, God raises up a deliverer, Moses, who is protected and prepared, equipped and encouraged in order to free God's people from slavery and take them all the way to the promised land. But chapters 5 through 7, things go from bad to worse because Pharaoh rejects God's command, and instead of obeying God, he makes things worse for the Israelites. But God responds, and he sends nine plagues on Egypt. So all the world might know that God is God and there is no other, and he's a God who makes distinctions between his people and the Egyptians. But Pharaoh still won't let God's people go. So God sends a tenth plague, which brings salvation to the nation of Israel. If you would follow along as I read Exodus 11 verses 1 to 10. The Lord said to Moses, yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. And when he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they may ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servant, and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And Moses went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Why? So that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go. So the last plague is the promise of death. The angel of the Lord coming at midnight to kill the firstborn in every single home throughout the entire nation of Egypt. 
Whether it's the home of the lowliest slave girl, poor and pathetic, or the home of Pharaoh, the most powerful man in all the world. Either way, the firstborn is going to die, both man and beast. But a few things to take note of that are right here in the text. Number one, notice the promise of deliverance. Verse one, the Lord says to Moses, yet one more plague And afterwards, Pharaoh will let my people go. In fact, he will drive them out completely. So God sovereignly knows the beginning from the end, which he already told us all the way back in Exodus 3, verse 19. Just flip back a few pages, Exodus 3, verse 19. Remember, at the burning bush, look at what God says, verse 19. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do. That's the 10 plagues, including the death of the firstborn. And after that, notice, he will let you go. And then verse 21, look at this. And I will give the people favor in the, height, in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask her neighbor and any woman in her house for silver and gold jewelry and clothing. You shall put them on your sons and daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. Which is exactly what God says again. If you would flip back to chapter 11, verses 2 and 3. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they may ask every neighbor, every man and every woman for what? For gold and silver jewelry. And what does the text say? The text says the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Chapter 12, verse 36 will say, thus the Israelites plundered the Egyptians. So it's not just number one, the promise of deliverance, but number two, the promise of plundering, which wasn't actually just promised to Moses, but was promised to Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 15. Genesis 15, 13. You don't have to turn. I'll read it for you. Then the Lord said to Abraham, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be slaves there and afflicted there. How long? Genesis 15, 13. It tells us for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation and I will bring them out with great possessions. So God's sovereign over all things, including an immediate glorious deliverance, the plundering of Egypt and a horrific judgment. Number three, the promise of judgment. Because this is no small thing, is it? That every firstborn in every house, every poor house, every rich house, every big house, every small house in all of Egypt will have the firstborn die. That's a horrible promise isn't it? I mean, you have good promises and you have bad promises, right? In the same way that you have good dreams and you have bad dreams. And you know the difference, don't you? Because good dreams are enjoyable. They're fun and exciting and make you wake up wanting to go back to sleep so that you can experience what was in the good dream. But bad dreams are nightmares 
And they make you wake up and praise God that it's not reality. But this is a nightmare promise because this is reality. God promising the death of every firstborn in every home. So that, verse 6, a great cry throughout all of Egypt, such as there has never been nor will ever be. Feel the weight of that. Now look at verse 7. But not even a dog will growl against the people of Israel, man or beast, so that you may know that the Lord makes distinctions between Egypt and Israel. So God is clearly separating those who are going to experience judgment and those who aren't. So there's a radical difference between homes that experience death from homes that are delivered from death. And how exactly does God make that distinction? Well, it's on the basis of a substitute. Follow along as I read Exodus chapter 12. We move to B, substitute explained. Exodus chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. What's going on here? Well, God is saying the lamb needs to be, number one, perfectly sized for you and your family. Verse 5, he continues, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, one year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the house in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until morning, you shall burn. And notice in this manner, you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Verse 12, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment because I am the Lord. Verse 13, so the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. If you would skip down to verse 21. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts. 
For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. But when he sees the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and your sons forever. Verse 25, and when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, notice, as he promised, you shall keep this service. When your children say, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it's the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And how do the people respond to this glorious promise of salvation? They bowed their heads and they worshiped. Worship is the only right response to such a glorious Salvation. So the distinction between the Israelites and the Egyptians is crystal clear, isn't it? I mean, the Israelites have their doorposts covered in blood, and the Egyptians do not. So the blood of the lamb is a sign, right? It's, it's a marker that causes the death angel to pass over. So if you're covered by the blood of the lamb, you live. But if you're not covered by the blood of the lamb, you die. And what exactly do we know about this substitutionary lamb? Well, we already know it needs to be, number one, perfectly sized for each and every home. But number two, it also needs to be without blemish. So without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, so 100% blameless. Number three, it needs to be identified with the people. I mean, did you catch how specific the details are here? Because these people are called and commanded to bring this Passover lamb into their homes specifically on the 10th day of the month. And they're called and commanded to kill the lamb specifically at twilight on the 14th day of the month. Which means that it lives with them. It's one of them. It's part of the family, if you will for one whole week. As soon as I hear that, I can't help but think of Linda's youngest sister, Mariana. So when Linda was a kid, her entire family would travel to Mexico for Christmas. Linda's mom is from Mexico. So they get the three girls in the car, they pack them up, they drive like 22 hours all the way down to Mexico so they could celebrate Christmas with Linda's mom's family. They get all the way there one year. When they get there, they finally get out of the car, and Mariana sees this goat tied up in the backyard. So Mariana, just like every other kid, falls in love with this goat, calls the goat Buddy. The whole week, she loves that goat. She plays with that goat. She includes that goat in her tea parties, all of her games. But of course, as you might guess, Buddy is slotted to be the main dish at the Christmas dinner. So when the time comes, she's not rejoicing. She's crying. Why? Because Buddy had become one of the family. 
Don't you see? The spotless lamb was part of the family. So he's identified with the people. And why is that so important? Well, because number four, the lamb serves as a sacrificial substitute. So when the death angel comes, someone is going to die in every single home. For the Egyptians, it's the firstborn, but for the Israelites, it's a spotless substitute. And its blood is a sign that judgment has already taken place. So death passes right over. And I want you to be clear here because it is the Lord's judgment. So in the same way that this Passover is the Lord's Passover, verse 11, this judgment is the Lord's judgment. Verse 13, when I, the Lord, see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I, the Lord, strike the land of Egypt. So this judgment is the Lord's judgment. And it's only through the blood of this spotless lamb sacrificed as a substitute that judgment will pass over. Now you might be wondering, why exactly is the blood so important? Well, in Leviticus 17, we're told that the blood symbolizes two things. So the blood symbolizes the life of the victim, and the blood symbolizes the life for whom it is substituted. And why is that? Well, because there's life in the blood. So the blood is a sign of salvation for the Israelites because it's not just the Egyptians who deserve God's wrath as punishment for sin, but the Israelites as well. That's why they so desperately needed to be covered by the blood of the lamb. Last point, did you notice how the lamb is number five completely consumed? So either totally eaten up or it's burned with fire, but not a single bone broken, and yet the entire lamb is consumed, which is so instructive because the Passover lamb was chosen for one very specific purpose, to die as a substitute. But you might be struggling here a bit because it almost seems like there's a flaw in the argument. I mean, after all, in the houses of Egypt, it was only the firstborn who was going to die. And if any of the Israelites had neglected the Passover, meaning they disobeyed what God had commanded, again, only the firstborn was going to die. But if you're thinking in terms of substitution then surely it would seem like the lamb was only a substitute for the firstborn. Yes, that's exactly right. But don't you remember how God referred to Israel all the way back in Exodus 4.22? Thus saith the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Therefore let my Son go, that he may serve me. Which, by the way, is why the entire nation of Israel is dressed and ready to go, with their loins girded, their sandals on, and their staffs in their hands. Why? Because when the death angel comes, they're not only going to be delivered from God's judgment, but they're going to be set free from Pharaoh's enslavement. So essentially, right, God is saying, put your Nikes on, right? It's go time, son. 
And this entire nation, as a whole, as God's firstborn son, this whole community of God's people are going to be saved. So a glorious salvation, all accomplished through the death of a spotless sacrifice, substitutionary Passover lamb. Salvation promised. Substitution explained. Now see that salvation completed. If you would, follow along as I read Exodus chapter 12, verses 29 and following. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt because there was not a single house where someone was not dead. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord. As you have said, take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and be gone. Little parenthetical comment. And bless me also. Isn't that just incredible. Verse 33, and the Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out in haste, for they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they left them, so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Sukkoth. Notice, about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. God has been so faithful to his promise. You will go down there, but do not worry. I will multiply you. I will make you like a number that no man can count. 600,000 men. If every man is married, that would be 1.2 million. If every couple has even two kids, this is 2.4 million people. That's how much he multiplied them. God faithful to his promises. Now notice verse 40. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. Again, just like he promised. At the end of 430 years on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt Skip down to verse 50. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded. Verse 51. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Please notice, everything that God had commanded has come to pass. I mean, in Exodus 11, he promised judgment, plunder, and deliverance. That's exactly what he's accomplished. Judgment, plunder, and deliverance. 
Verse 29 tells us, at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. There was not a house in which there was not a child dead. Can you even imagine what that must have been like? How eerie it would have been to literally have hysterical crying and screaming coming from literally every single Egyptian home right at midnight, not scattered, pitch black darkness at midnight, the crying starts. Mothers wailing together in absolute horror, in perfect unison, uncontrollable, unconsolable, weeping and wailing, sobbing and screaming. This is a highly populated place, right? Think about what that would have been like in, in, in like New York City. Right here we're spread out, kind of countryside living. But if you live right on top of one another, the screaming must have been horrific. And yet there's no cries from the Israelite homes. Why? Because the blood of the Lamb. The blood of the Lamb not only delivered them from death, but also secured their freedom from slavery. All of that only possible through the substitutionary death of the Passover Lamb. What you've got to see here is that there's not a single person who's not affected by this judgment. Every single person is either on one side or the other. I mean, you're, you're, you're either experiencing death or you're experiencing salvation. But there's not a single person who's simply sitting on the fence. Nobody here is uninvolved, unaffected, or totally neutral. That's not an option. You're either judged by God or you're covered by the blood of the Lamb. And listen to me when I say this judgment is horrific, but it's nothing compared to the judgment that is to come. If you're covered by the blood of the Lamb, you're not only delivered from judgment and not only freed from your enslavement, but you're empowered. You're given the ability to plunder the enemy. Make the connection. The first nine plagues absolutely destroyed Egypt. I mean, there is nothing left. That's how I feel when I read the nine plagues. You, you get to the end of those six, seven, and eight, right? The pestilence killed all the cattle. The hail killed all of the land. And then the locusts come and they eat up absolutely everything else. Egypt is totally destroyed. 
But now with the 10th plague, the Israelites asked, notice, they asked, verse 35 says, they asked, so they did not steal anything, they asked the Egyptians for all of their silver and gold and clothing. Why? So they're packed and ready to make it all the way to the promised land. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. So Egypt is not only destroyed, it's penniless. So Israel is free to go and empowered to go. God said, let my people go, and now they go. And then they're empowered to go. Israel delivered not only from judgment, but enslavement. And all of that happens through the death of a substitute, the Passover Lamb. So with that, let's transition from number one, judgment on Egypt, to number two, judgment on Christ. And the reason we're able to jump so quickly to that connection is because Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So let's just think together about all the incredible Connections, because Jesus is the one true spotless Lamb of God, is he not? The one without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, 100% blameless and perfectly obedient to God the Father, which means that he was without sin. So he spent his entire life living in total obedience. In fact, John 4.34, Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. John 8.29 says, he always did what was pleasing to the Father. So Jesus is the one true spotless lamb of God. And he's the one who was completely identified with his people. Certainly that was true in the incarnation. So not just the spotless lamb of God, but be solidarity with his people, which is exactly what we're about to celebrate at Christmas, that God became man and dwelt among us. So Jesus becomes like us in every single way. Philippians 2.7, he took the form of a bondservant and was born in the likeness of of men, which was true during his entire earthly ministry. Hebrews 4.15 says he was tempted in all things, just as we are, yet he was without sin. Why is that so important? Because we know where this thing is headed, don't we? I mean, we're all sinners in Adam who absolutely 100% deserve God's judgment. So every single one of us is desperately in need, see, of a sacrificial substitute. So we all need our own very own Passover lamb, don't we? Who can be slaughtered in our stead with his bud being placed over the doorpost and the lintel of our heart so that the death angel can pass over and we can be saved from our sin. Here's a question for you. Where's the best place to go in all the Bible to prove that Jesus is not just an adequate sacrificial substitute, but a willing sacrificial substitute? You should look at your bulletin. I'm not going to keep this from you, right? Right? The celebration of the Lord's Passover. Luke 22. 
otherwise known as the Lord's Supper. I mean, just think about the connections. For example, do you remember back in Exodus 12 how the Passover lamb was selected on the 10th day of the month, identified with his people, and then sacrificed on the 14th day of the month? That seems very specific. We'll put this together. Because Jesus came riding into Jerusalem to celebrate Passover when? Palm Sunday. What day would that be? That would be the 10th day of the month. So the exact same day in which the Passover lamb was to be selected. So what does that mean for us this morning? It means Jesus willingly rode into town. He willingly put himself forward as the one true Passover lamb. And then on the 14th day of the month, which, which would have been what? Thursday, the same day the Passover lambs were to be slaughtered, he's sitting with his disciples celebrating this meal, the Passover meal, saying things like, this is my body, broken for you which it absolutely will be, 9 a.m. the next morning. Crucified for you, beaten for you, scourged for you, mocked and made fun of for you, received 39 lashes for you, nailed to a cross for you, was crushed and pierced through for you. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood, Jesus said, poured out for you, shed for you. Ultimately, all that I am consumed for you, crucified, dead, and buried for you. So Jesus willingly became our Passover lamb, sacrificed and consumed, so that D, our salvation, might be secured. But that really accomplishes two different things, doesn't it? So number one, his death delivers us from God's judgment, but also number two, his death delivers us from sin's enslavement. So if you will, the entire Exodus narrative points forward to those two glorious gospel truths. Let me highlight them for you, starting with number one, the reality that Jesus' death delivers us from judgment. Let me ask you this question. Was there any difference, fundamentally, was there any difference between the Israelites and the Egyptians? No. Of course not. Because they're both clearly sinners, and therefore they both clearly deserve God's judgment. And the same is true for every single one of us this morning. And yet God made a distinction, didn't he? Because only those who were covered by the blood of the lamb were delivered. But that same distinction is available this morning because only those covered by the blood of the one true Passover lamb, the Lord Jesus, will be delivered from God's ultimate, final, horrific judgment. Please, listen to me. That judgment is still coming. And God promises that not a single person will be missed 
from that judgment. So let me just ask, are you really ready this morning to face your maker? Are you really ready to stand in his presence and give him an answer for your life? Are you crystal clear on what you're going to say in that moment? Here's one of the things that I think the devil does so well. Think of the things that you plan and you prepare for. Right? College, career, who you're going to marry, how many kids you're going to have, what you're going to call their names, where you're going to go on vacation, like how do I plan for for retirement, how much money do I have. Think of all the time that you spend planning and preparing for all of those things. And yet, every single one of us is going to die. Have you planned? Have you prepared for what you're going to say to God? You're going to take your last breath here on earth and your next breath in his presence. Every single one of us will stand before God. First comes death, then comes judgment. How are you going to respond? I don't think it's going to be a long conversation. I'm not saying that. But boy, oh boy, I want you planned and prepared to say, I'm covered by the blood of the Lamb. That's all I have to say. My faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternal life. If you plan on saying anything other than that, you need to know this morning you will be judged. But what a glorious offer. What an unbelievable offer. Because those who are covered by the blood of the Lamb, those who have repented and believed, those who are trusting in Christ's substitutionary death, those who have put their faith in Jesus, will experience the pure joy of God's judgment passing over them. And the pure joy of being in His presence in the ultimate promised land. Praise God. Jesus' blood still saves sinners. Just like we sang this morning. Who can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. How about you? Is that you this morning? Oh, I plead with you. I invite you to respond to such a glorious salvation. 
And in the same way that the Israelites were delivered from the Egyptian taskmasters, those who put their faith in Christ are delivered from the taskmaster of sin's enslavement. I mean, that's exactly what Jesus promises in John 8, 34. He's so crystal clear. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. But if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. What exactly does that mean? It means that when you believe in Jesus, you're delivered not only from God's judgment, but also from sin's power. So sin no longer has mastery over you. Sin no longer controls you, no longer commands you, no longer dictates your entire life. That's why Paul says in Romans 6.12, Notice 612, 6-1-11, that's where it declares that if you put your faith in Jesus, you're identified with him. This is who you are. Then he gets to 612. And he says, therefore, because your identity is in Christ, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But instead, he says, present yourselves to God, as those who have been delivered from death to life, and your members to God as instruments of unrighteousness. So you're free, free to live for God, free to actually put sin to death, and free to actually walk in righteousness, free to change, free to be transformed, and free to live gloriously different than the world around you, gloriously different than who you used to be. Because you're free. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And I want you to feel that this morning. Right? That, that's why I started with Earl Washington. I mean, Earl Washington sat on death row for 17 years of his life. Spiritually speaking, I sat on death row for 24 years of my life until one day I was offered life by faith in the Lord Jesus and I was given freedom over sin Dear believer, my deepest desire is for you to feel that freedom this morning. I mean, do you understand my goal in preaching is not only to preach to your head, but to preach to your hearts. I don't want you just to be instructed on the glory of the gospel. I want you to feel the glory of the gospel, to be overwhelmed by it. My desire is to stir you up to even greater joy and affection for the Lord Jesus and to try and cause you to actually feel the glory of your freedom from sin. Because it is such a wonderful gift that you're free from the power of sin. Dear believer, are you hearing me this morning? You are free from the power of sin. If the Son sets you free, you will be free 
Indeed, just like Earl Washington on that beautiful day walked out of prison with the sun on his face and the breeze in his air, free, free to do whatever he wanted. You're free, dear believer. You're free, delivered from your enslavement to sin and free to walk in newness of life. You're free. What sin are you struggling with this morning? Anxiety? Fear of man? Impurity? Sexual immorality? Pride? Judgmentalism? Greed, anger, coveting, hatred, if the sun sets you free, you are free indeed. You're free to say no to sin and free to walk in newness of life. Paul tells us, Galatians 5.13, for you were called to freedom, brothers. I say to you, dear believer, you are called to freedom. Let us be those who are resolved to rejoice daily, to be overwhelmed with gratitude daily that Christ has set us free so that we might live for his glory and his honor and his praise, that we might have an orientation on a daily basis with our lives that we might worship him, the Lamb, who has set us free. Allow me to pray to that end. Father, we are so grateful for your word. So grateful for these glorious pictures that point us forward to the Lord Jesus, the reality that we can be delivered from God's judgment and we can be delivered from sin's enslavement. Father, I pray that you would be at work in every mind and in every heart. Lord, that we would be delighting in the Lord Jesus Christ for such a glorious deliverance. And Father, that we might live free, that we might put sin to death and walk in righteousness, that we might be those who live for your glory. Father, do that good work for our good and for your eternal glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.